0: Our passage today is coming from Numbers chapter 5. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, and if you were with us last week, you know that's a quick fast forward. In fact, we're hopping over the second part of Exodus, all of Leviticus, until we reach Numbers. And the reason we're doing that is because I wanted you all to be able to get kind of an overall sense of the scope of this wilderness journey without taking about three or four years for us to do so and uh, much of Leviticus is about kind of setting forth what does this new life look like we'll talk about that here in just a moment as well but uh, with, with it centers around the tabernacle about God's presence being in the midst of the Israelites which takes us then to Numbers chapter 5 and I'm going to read today from the first 10 verses. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the Israelites to put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with a corpse. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp. They must not defile their camp, where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so, putting them outside the camp, as the Lord had spoken to Moses, So the Israelites did. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelites. When a man or a woman wrongs another, breaking faith with the Lord, that person incurs guilt and shall confess the sin that has been committed. The person shall make full restitution for the wrong, adding one-fifth to it and giving it to the one who was wronged. If the injured party has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong." The restitution for a wrong shall go to the Lord, for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for the guilty party. Among all the sacred donations to the priest shall be his. The sacred donations of all are their own. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we pray that you would be with us this day. As we look at this text, a text that is seemingly very foreign to the world in which we live, we pray that you would open our eyes to what you would have to say to us. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. I'll admit to you uh, that earlier this week when I was looking at our passage for today, I had several moments when I kept asking myself, why again did I want to preach on this passage? Uh, There were lots of other options. And I know several weeks ago when I kind of laid out this series, there must have been a reason, but I struggled for a while this week wondering exactly what that reason was. So finally, I decided that we're just going to have to kind of dive in. And as we do so, perhaps we will begin to understand how a passage that just seems so radically other than the world in which we live, how it might still speak to us today. Let's begin by talking about that first section, the first four verses These are what they call the purity laws. And there's lots of them, especially, as I said earlier, in the book of Leviticus. There's a a lot of these laws that talk about who can be inside the camp and who needs to be put outside the camp, at least for a time. Some of the reasons, as you'll see in Leviticus, is because of the fact that uh, a sin has been committed, that there's been brokenness. And so the guilty party needs to go outside the camp until atonement can occur, and then that person can be received back inside of the camp. Other parts of the purity laws are what I just read over those last few verses in Numbers, and these it seems to have to do more, uh, at least in part, with, with health and with hygiene. If you happen to watch Stan and Scott's videos, and I would just as a quick sidebar, I'd encourage you to do that. Every week they've been putting out um, a a Bible study on each of these passages that I've been doing. It's kind of fun to see the different places that they go. Uh, They talk about this fact that in many ways, of course, this is a way to be clean, a way to keep the community clean safe if you're a leper if you're bleeding if you uh, touch a dead person that rather than kind of passing around some of those diseases we ask you to to give some space to those who are healthy now if I'd preached that eight months ago many of us would have thought well that's kind of interesting but seems a little different thank God we don't have to do that today Well congratulations. We understand this passage more now than we ever have before. It's kind of funny because sometimes I hear some Christians who who maybe get concerned about well why are we you know are we scared? How come we're separating and doing those things and maybe it doesn't feel godly? Well funny enough thousands of years ago this is exactly what God wanted and so we're experiencing that now where if you're sick you decide to quarantine so that you don't get us sick or you isolate yourself and if you don't want to be sick then we also take precautions by separating ourselves and so in many ways that's what we see going on here in this fifth chapter of Numbers but there's also something else it seems to me that's really important for us to understand about the purity laws generally and these that we see in Numbers chapter 5 and that's the sense That in many ways, what's happening is that God is having to help the Israelites begin to understand who they now are as his people. That now that God is dwelling in their very midst, the holy God, the set apart God, they have to begin to understand what difference that makes. In their lives and that calls for a radical shift you have to remember that they have been slaves to the Egyptians for years for generations and that slavery begins to embed itself deeply into our DNA deeply into how we understand ourselves So if you're an Israelite and you've been a slave ever since you could remember, then you begin to think that those around you, the Egyptians, are obviously much better than you are. You begin to think, well, this must mean that our God is weaker than the Egyptian gods or that perhaps our God has left us all together. You begin to think that your identity, that your worth, comes from the work that you do. The more work that you can do, the better you are. The less work you can do, the less worthy you are. You are dispensable. You are enslaved to the chains that are around you. You begin to think when you look at the mirror or when you begin to look at the pond and see your reflection, what you see is a slave. That is, is who you are. And that has been embedded deeply into the Israelites. And now God is saying things have changed. But that doesn't happen quickly. I like what someone has said, which is that even though it took a lot of work to get the people out of Egypt, the truth is it's actually even more difficult to get the Egypt out of the people. My guess is that most of us, at least in some sense, understand that. That once we get into habits or a sense of what we do or who we are, it is nearly impossible to make a quick switch. I'll, I'll admit uh, something as silly as, as the fact that now the bridge at, at on Sycamore uh, that goes across the Eagle Creek, it's finally open after six months. I can't tell you how many times I've driven from the church down to 106th and I turn on 106th and I think, oh, Jerry, what's wrong with you? You could have saved half the time by just going across the bridge. but I've quickly become so accustomed to that it's hard to make a switch of course all of us do that and for things that are much more meaningful many of us have chains that have been attached to us, us from childhood things that we heard our parents say to us our siblings friends enemies you're too fat, you're too thin, you're too smart, you're too short, you're too tall. Your worth comes from the, from the grades that you get, the work that you do, the popularity that you have, the clothes you wear, the house that you live in. We have all of these chains that are deeply embedded in us. And though we hear the words of the New Testament, we hear those beautiful words. That you are a new creation. That the old life has gone and a new life is begun. Living into that new identity just as the Israelites were trying to shed that slave mentality and to live into their new identity is incredibly difficult. That's why Walter Brueggemann When he discusses this journey through the wilderness, he says that much of that journey is actually about learning what it means to live into who God said the Israelites are. Who God says that you are. So for the Israelites, God begins to put in these rules, these regulations, these guidelines for these wilderness wanderers. And they are there in order to help them to begin to understand what it means that the holy God is in their midst. What it means to be a children of God, how that shapes, how they respond to God, how they connect with others in the community. All of these things are put in place so that they can begin to understand in a clearer and deeper sense who they are. And as I began to think about that, about how the Israelites had to adjust to what it meant to have a holy God in their midst, I realize that perhaps that's why I've been struggling with trying to understand how to connect with this passage. Because for a lot of us, it's hard for us to kind of fathom not being able to kind of understand what it means to be in the presence of a holy God. Last week, it's true, we talked about the fact that sometimes it can be difficult for us to point to specific spots where we see the Lord. But at the very same time, Most of us are very aware of that understanding that, hey, yeah, God is everywhere. Wherever you go, God is there. We're familiar with Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. But actually, as someone has pointed out, it it very well could be that because we are so used to that kind of language, that might actually be the reason why we wrestle with seeing God work in specific places. It's like we've grown so comfortable with God. That we have no real sense of a holy God. A God that is set apart. It's almost like God just become kind of like a pair of comfortable slippers. I, I broke out last week my comfortable slippers. It was great. I was so glad that fall is here and Whenever I have the slippers on, the girls always know, even if they're upstairs and I'm walking around, because apparently I just kind of slide with them around. I hardly even know they're there. In fact, I, I don't know if I'm the only one for whom this occurs, but there have been times when I didn't realize I was wearing slippers, and I got into my vehicle, and I went to the grocery store, and I was about to get out when I looked down and thought, oh no, what do I do? And then I had to decide, well, do they look enough like shoes That if I see a ZPC-er, they won't think that I am going crazy. And I do think that at times, perhaps, we grow so comfortable with the sense of God that we totally forget the awesome perfection of the holiness of God. So intriguingly enough, just like the Israelites needed to learn what it was like to live with a holy God, maybe we as Christians need to reclaim and understand what does it mean for God to be holy, for God to be other? What does it mean, as scriptures would tell us, for us to be holy just as God is holy? another part of the reason why it's hard for us to think about God being holy or or using words like holy is because in our context, holy almost always has negative connotations. If you're called a holy roller, usually that means you're a Christian who people find to be kind of an odd Christian. If you get a bit smug with your friends Sometimes they'll say, oh, sorry, your holiness. We didn't mean to, you know, offend you. If people think that you're becoming too judgmental, they may ask you or at least tell their friends that you seem to be holier than thou. All of those things are negative. I've told you all before that when I kind of go about and if I meet people and they discover I'm a pastor, usually it changes the conversation pretty dramatically. Sometimes um, if it's a holy roller uh, they love it and they start talking to me about weird things about Christianity. Other times uh, you, it, people begin to shut down the conversation or maybe they go back and they say oh I'm sorry that I said what I said earlier I, di- I didn't mean to and you know, there could be lots of reasons for that. Sometimes people have a, you know, a bad sense in their heart about churches, a bad experience. You know, sometimes it's, it's that they just don't like me. I, I get it has nothing to do with being a pastor. They just don't like Jerry. But sometimes I think it's because I may represent for them this sense, their understanding of what of, of holiness. And so typically it's something that makes them want to run away. In fact, if I can be so honest, I have to admit there are times when I'm tempted to say something unholy or to do something unholy so that they'll say, no, no, I'm just like you. We can still be friends, right? It can be difficult to understand what exactly it means to be holy. But when we remember that holy simply means being set apart, being distinct for God and for God's work, rather than as something that the society around us and perhaps even some of those in the church would tell us means being just a bit better, uh, being a bit more judgmental perhaps at times than others. It might just reclaim holiness and it might actually allow holiness to do what it was meant to do, which is to draw people closer to God. Here's what I mean. Think about our very last passage very last part of our passage. What it begins to talk about, if you were paying attention, was this sense of confession. What does it mean to be a holy person in the camp? It means that when you break relationship with someone else, when you have wronged them, that you need to be repentant to them. That you need to then pay them back for how you have wronged them. That you then need to be someone who sees that a broken relationship with a brother or sister is also a broken relationship with God. That those two things are connected intricately and intimately. That actually this is what it means to be a holy person. What it means is that you lead with confession. And I want to suggest to you that that in many ways, can actually draw people closer to God. That's what God desires in our holiness. Several years ago now, I read to you a little bit of a story from Donald Miller in his book, Blue Like Jazz. I want to say it again because it's one that always moves me when it comes to this thought of confession as being a holy Act. Miller was, uh, was at a school at Reed College, uh, which is in Oregon. It's been voted the most secular college uh, in the nation. They take great pride with that. He said that you could oftentimes find a bumper sticker that said, I wish we could still feed Christians to the lions. Uh, there were, though, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, a few Christians that were there at the college campus and one time they were there and they were gathering this small group and somebody said, you know, I got an idea. I want to build a confession booth that we put right in the middle of Ren Faire. Ren Fair was this two-day party, two-night party that they would have annually where they would, on the first night, everybody would get drunk. On the second night, everyone would get high. After that uh, comment from the Christian, the brothers and sisters around were like, eh, I'm sure that's such a great idea. One of them said, you know, I'm afraid that if they, we did that, more than likely that confession booth would get burned down. Another one said, well, maybe we should build a trap door so that we could get out after it was on fire. But after they had kind of bandied this about for a little bit, the, the person with the original idea said, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think you quite understand what I'm saying. The reason why we're doing this confession booth is not so that people can confess to us. It's so that we as Christians can confess to them. So that we can confess to them what we have gotten wrong. The places that I, that we have fallen short. That we haven't fed those who Jesus has called us to feed. That we haven't cared for those who Jesus has called us to care for. So Miller continues and he then begins to tell the story of the very first person who came into the booth when he was there. It's a little bit of a longer reading, but I hope that you will bear with me in this. The first person comes in and says, what's up, man? He sat himself on the chair with a smile on his face. He told me that my pipe smelled good. Thanks, I said. I asked him his name, and he said his name was Jake. I shook his hand because I I didn't know what else to do, really. So what is this, Jake said. I'm supposed to tell you all the juicy gossip I did at Ren Fair, right? No. Okay, then, then what, he asked. What's the game? Not really a game, more of a confession thing. You want me to confess my sins, right? No, that's not what we're doing, really, I said to him. What's the deal, man, and what's with the monk outfit? Apparently he was wearing a monk outfit. Well, we are a group of Christians here on campus, you know. Jake uh, quizzically said, I see, strange place for Christians, but I'm listening. Thanks, I told him. He was being very patient and gracious. Anyway, there is this group of us. Just a few of us who were thinking about the way Christians have sort of wronged people over time. You know, the Crusades, all that stuff. Well, Jake said, I doubt you personally were involved in any of that. No, I wasn't, I told him. But the thing is, we are followers of Jesus. We believe that he is God and all. And he represented certain ideas that we have sort of not done a good job of representing. He's asked us to represent him well, but it can be very hard. I see. Jake said so there's this group of us on campus I went on who wanted to confess to you you're confessing to me Jake said with a laugh yeah we are confessing to you I mean I am confessing to you you're serious his laugh turned to something of a straight face I told him I was. He looked at me and told me I didn't have to. I told him I did, and I felt very strongly in the moment that I was supposed to tell Jake that I was sorry about everything. What are you confessing, he asked. I shook my head and looked at the ground. Everything, I told him. Explain, Jake said. Miller goes on to describe how he continued to tell him the things for which he was confessing, the things that he was a part of individually or corporately. At the end, Jake forgives him. And then Jake says, you really believe in Jesus, don't you? Yeah, I think I do, Miller said. Most often I do. I have doubts at times, but mostly I believe in him. It's like there's something in me that causes me to believe. I can't explain it. And Jake asked, you said earlier that there was a central message of Christ. I I don't really want to become a Christian, you know, but, but what is that message? The message is that man sinned against God and God gave the world over to man and that if somebody wanted to be rescued out of that, if somebody, for instance, finds it all very empty, that Christ will rescue them if they want. And if they ask forgiveness for being a part of that rebellion, then God will forgive them. Jake's eyes watered again. This is cool, what you guys are doing, he repeated. I'm going to tell my friends about this. Miller goes on to describe how that night made him believe in Jesus like he had never believed in Christ before. And that he was convinced that his life and the life of so many others were changed on that night forever because they led with confession. I think this is the holy act to which God calls us. One of the cool things about the Old Testament and even some into the New Testament is that the symbol, oftentimes, for holiness is a fire. And I was thinking about that because this morning we had our, out, we had our home group around a, a fire, around this pit. And, and one of the things that I noticed that we all did is we, we wanted to get closer to it. You don't want to touch it, but you're drawn to it for its light, for its heat, for its life. I think it's the same thing that we know that we are engaged in holy acts for a holy God. When we begin to do things like confession that begin to bring people closer to us and closer to God. It is a strange irony of holiness. Which is that when you begin to set yourself apart in order to live for God. It is with great frequency that others Begin to want to grow closer. For they are drawn to the heat, to the light, and to the life of the Holy God. Sisters and brothers in Christ, my hope is that we will be a holy. A people set apart. Maybe we begin with an act like confession. An act of restitution. An act of reconciliation. And through these sorts of holy acts, not only do we begin to grow more and more into who God has said we are, No longer chained to the past. No longer chained to those, to whatever it is that anyone else says that we are. Living within the identity of who God says we now are. And that as we do so, others would draw closer to him. May it be so. Hallelujah. Amen and amen.